I wanted to see if I could use one of these tools that in itself doesn't have any meaning and use it to create some sort of arc. Hi, everyone. Welcome, and thank you for joining me. My name is Franco Verano, and I'll be your host for the Tech Plus Art podcast. Tech Plus Art is the community for curious individuals and creators who are looking to make a dent in the universe. Together, we're exploring the new frontiers of creativity, humanity, and how emerging technologies will continue to shape our culture, professions, products, and much more. Join me on this journey as we speak with artists, makers, researchers, designers, and creators from all backgrounds and fields. Tech Plus Art is an inclusive community, and we make our content for you. So we want to hear from you. If you have any feedback, suggestions, topics you'd like us to explore or contribute to yourself, reach out to us on Twitter or via the website. You can check us out at maketechart.com or at maketechart everywhere else. So with that out of the way, let's get to today's episode. Today we're speaking with Mike Taika, an artist and software engineer at Google. Coming from an academic background with a PhD in biophysics, Mike's artistic work has focused on both traditional mediums as well as the uses of emerging technology, such as 3D printing and artificial neural networks. Mike has also co-founded the Artists and Machine Intelligence program at Google, and his work has been showcased around the world from Seattle to Tokyo. I definitely recommend exploring Mike's work online by visiting his website at MikeTaika.com. So let's get started. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's nice to be here. Thanks. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super excited to get the chance to speak with you today and to learn more about both your path and what you're up to today. But before we dive into that, can you tell us more about yourself? I grew up in Germany, eventually emigrated to the UK and then to the US. I studied biochemistry originally, but now ended up in tech and machine learning. So sort of taking the weird securitous route. That's super cool. And so throughout that path, at what point did programming and generative art become a thing that you were interested in? I started to learn how to program as a kid. Like most kids at the time, I was fascinated by video games and eventually managed to convince my dad to, to buy a PC. I started editing save games and then through that, started getting interested in like how do the games actually work behind the scenes and started learning about programming and then got exposed to the demo scene, which is a sort of particular subculture of the sort of graphics computer nerd corner. And But it's really fun and was inspiring trying to get as much computational performance out of these machines that weren't all that good at the time. It was a real interesting challenge, but at the same time, people were also doing things that were beautiful. And I often got this questions, <laughs> question from my dad, where he's like, okay, program some graphical effect or something, and I would be super pleased with it, and I would show it, I'd be proud. And he'd be like, well, this is cool, but what is it good for? And that sort of weirdly influenced my thinking, because I didn't realize at the time that what I was doing was art, and that the question, what is it good for, is probably not the right question to ask in this very narrow sense. But I think that probably led to me going more into the sciences rather than the arts, at least for about a decade. So how did that transformation happen from that career path into more of what you're doing today? I went to university and studied biochemistry and was super fascinated by that too. I wanted to do something that's useful. But eventually I sort of circled around to the art as well. I went to Burning Man at some point and ended up helping with a big project, building a 30-foot Rubik's Cube. It was actually functional, not mechanically, but we had lights that would, could sort of march over the structure and you could play it. And that was just some, uh, really good fun. And that sort of reminded me that I liked doing that kind of work and was the sort of turning point where I started considering doing some sort of art in my spare time as well. Because I was doing biochemistry at the time, I started getting interested in making sculpture out of, out of proteins. I was looking at these structures, these molecular structures for a long time every day. I thought they were really beautiful. And so I started making copper and eventually also glass sculptures of these forms. I still do today. That's awesome. And so when did you shift your focus towards art? I make all my art in my spare time. 
that sort of works out for me in the right way. The, the challenge of being financially self-supporting as an artist is a huge challenge. And so I'm not really ready to make that, that jump. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And so when you do have some time to dedicate towards your art, what is your creative process like? Where do you get those ideas from? I usually draw the inspiration from the other work I do in my life. So the sciences and machine learning, which is what I work on right now, mostly. And so I just sort of observe the processes. A lot of these things are, are sort of hidden to, the, to the, um, the public, in a sense. Most people don't know what proteins look like. It's interesting to sort of share that in a way that's accessible. It doesn't require you to study for many years. And in the same way, machine learning is a really interesting process that actually affects a lot of people's lives already. But the processes under the hood are interesting and complex and, and have lots of aspects that are not readily visible from the outside. And so I think of my art as a way to illuminate some of those hidden issues or aspects of it. That's super cool. And so what drove you to deciding to leverage code and machine learning and AI to produce art? What bridged that gap for you? Was it just because you were so close to it? Yeah, I think it's just because that's what I was doing every day. It was what was on my mind. And so naturally, that's when my art, the art part of my mind goes as well. I don't think of myself as a media artist, even though I've done a bunch of media art in the last few years. But it's just what lends itself to the subject matter. On the other hand, more recently, I've been trying to get away from just sort of pure media. It's very tempting just to like run some algorithms and make some interesting graphics. And that's, that's cool and great. But to me, it's interesting how you can then take that out of the digital world and make it more physical again. That's sort of an ongoing thought process for me. I feel like I still haven't quite figured out how to take the, especially the machine learning kind of art and push it into a, a medium that's not just a screen or a print. So earlier you mentioned getting your start with the Rubik's Cube. So what's been your most ambitious project or projects to date? Can you tell us a little bit about them? I think the largest sculpture that I built from the proteins that was ambitious in a time way. I mean, it took hundreds and hundreds of hours to complete. It's about five foot tall, three foot wide, and is a full antibody in, in ribbon form. And that was just an incredible amount of polishing and metal work and welding. And that was before I had kids. <laughs> I can't do that sort of project anymore. And then the, the project I just installed at the, at the Mori Museum in, in Tokyo was also fairly complex in the sense that it just had a lot of moving parts. And that one has a, a ring of receipt printers hung to the ceiling and kind of these paper ribbons come out with machine-generated tweets on them, the AI-generated tweets or automatically generated content. And just sort of the technicalities of figuring out how to put this whole thing together in a way that made sense and was easy to install. Is You're always juggling a lot of different aspects. Like you're trying to balance what you want it to look like with the feasibility of what can be achieved. And then when it comes to doing things that other people have to be able to install as well, then there are additional concerns you have to think about. So that's sort of where a lot of the complexity comes from. Just making something is one thing, but making it such that it can it's robust and it's a whole different thing. Yeah, absolutely. Portable and stuff like that. I sort of learned that the hard way. I mean, I made a couple of sculptures that I later realized, because I wanted it to, be, to look like it's, it's almost floating above the base, for example. And the connection to the base was just too weak. And then it had to, it had to be modified, etc. Because I didn't think about the fact that this thing has to travel and get packed up and get moved around, and etc. And I have another piece. It's basically a, a phone that's cast out of plaster, but it's presented on a mirror a little bit like people use cocaine. So it's, it's like crushed up on the corner and cut into lines and has like a credit card lying next to it. And the, the piece is about our addiction to our phones and, and social media in general. But the, the problem is it's, it's basically a mirror with dust on it. It's just plaster, but still, in a lot of settings, I can't just put it out because somebody sneezes and the thing is gone. I'm still figuring out how to actually present this in a practical manner. 
Definitely. That sounds super challenging, especially since you're connecting the concept that you're trying to communicate with a physical presentation. Right. I mean, to me, it's it's my art just tends to be fairly cerebral and based on these kinds of ideas. And then I tend to sort of pick the medium that makes that work the best rather than saying, so I, I only work in this medium and then I see what comes. Yeah, that's super cool. And so exploring the digital side of your practice a bit more, how did some of your early work get started, especially with regards to your exposure to the Deep Dream algorithm? How did you get into that space? Right. So, so Deep Dream was invented by a coworker of mine, Alex Morgensef, and he started sort of sharing just photos passed through this algorithm internally, and people started using the algorithm, and, and people had a lot of fun. And that's when I first encountered it, and I started tinkering it more like an artist. So I, I started saying, okay, well, how do I get away from the starting photo? I want something that is purely from the algorithm that isn't influenced by some starting place. So I started experimenting with just starting with noise and then so iteratively zooming into the picture. So you apply the algorithm once and then you zoom in a little bit and you apply the algorithm again and again and again. And each time you do that, you sort of expose new low-level noise at the pixel level, which then the algorithm keeps reinterpreting and reinterpreting. And so you get these very immersive images this way that essentially reflect only the interpretation by the neural network that's used in this thing and just completely forgets the starting point. The starting point is essentially just a random seed at that point. And you can get very high resolution images that way. So yeah, that's how I got into it. And this was a lot of fun. It got me thinking about the wider possibilities of how to use generative neural networks for the purpose of making art. And so how did that lead to some of your recent work with GANs? From the Deep Dream stuff, I started getting interested in GANs, which are still pretty popular even today. A lot of people work with GANs. Those networks are explicitly made for generating images, whereas the Deep Dream was kind of like an inversion of a network that's otherwise used for classification, but it's not really designed for generating images. And that's why the Deep Dream images are so psychedelic and weird and unrealistic, whereas the GAN-generated stuff tends towards more towards realism. You know, in like 2000. 17, maybe, I, I started experimenting a lot with GANs for art generation, some collaborations, like with uh, Rafik Anadol. Um, we did a project together called Archive Dreaming. He had this huge archive of historical images, data, documents, etc., from Turkey. And so I ran this for a GAN algorithm, and we did this. We had this idea of kind of like redreaming. It's almost like alternative paths to memory, because what comes out is still pretty surrealistic. Like it's not photorealistic, but you get the sense of what the data is like. You get the sort of essence of what it visually feels like. He turned this into a whole super beautiful, kind of fully immersive room where you have projections all the way around and then a floor and a, and a ceiling that are mirrored. And then from there, I started getting interested in how to sort of drive the resolution up. And that led to sort of a series of portraits, which then split off into the printer project. But another line of thought that I've been investigating is a lot of these networks are good at generating stuff. And essentially what it's doing is it's, it's learning correlations between neighboring pixels or neighboring words or neighboring sentences, uh, depending on whether you're generating images or text or whatever. But they're not very good at learning really long-range structure or narrative arcs. So what comes out is kind of this meandering stream of, of stuff that doesn't make any sense in the long run. Even the really, really good models that had just come out this year really are not able to capture meaning as much as they're able to capture the statistics of words, for example. And so when you just look at one sentence, like, oh, this is a very reasonable sentence, there's no meaning behind it in the sense that there wasn't an underlying model that the, the machine learning algorithm tried to express. And so what happens is that a lot of the art and a lot of the works is produced is very in this very surrealistic realm. It's like impressions, and it's very interesting to look at it and sort of project your own meaning onto it. I think that's why Deep Dream was interesting and sort of engaging because 
it's sort of a canvas in a sense, right? Like you can see whatever you want to see in the image. But I was interested in, in how to make a narrative arc, how to actually say something with this technology. And that's where I, that's how I got into the, the animations and movie making in the last six months or so. I wanted to see if I could use one of these tools that in itself doesn't have any meaning and use it to create some sort of arc. Yeah, I think I came across some of your early work that involved the generated faces and maybe even some of the previous stuff with the Deep Dream algorithm. But when I came across Eons earlier this year, it was incredible. So can you tell us a little bit more about that project and what it's all about? Yeah, I mean, again, it's a reflection of what's on my mind. The environmental catastrophe that's, that's upon us is weighing on me quite a bit. And I was thinking about just the, the ways in which we tend to think really anthropocentrically about everything. The Earth has been here for a really long time and will continue to be here for a long time, even if we disappear. And, you know, when people say, you know, we need to save the environment or whatever, what they mean is they want to save us. We rely on the environment much more than we're willing to admit. And so the project ended up being sort of about this larger place that we find ourselves in, in time. And so it ended up being kind of a fast forward through evolution in a sense. You know, it starts out with sort of an underwater scene and then you see mountains emerge. And eventually for very brief periods, only actually a few seconds in the movie, you, you see a few villages and then, and, and then houses and whole cities and cars and it's all crazy. And then it all stops again. Things sort of slowly decay back into nature. I was sort of imagining what would happen if human civilization did collapse. This would look like an instantaneous event from the very far future. Just like we think about the dinosaurs dying out, like the asteroid came down and they were gone. That's not true. It happens over thousands, tens of hundreds of thousands of years. But because it's also compressed in, the, in our thinking, in our minds, we tend to think of the past sort of logarithmically. So like yesterday, and then a couple of weeks ago, and then 10 years ago, and then 100 years ago, and then, then it was already Egypt. Because of that compression, these things look instantaneous from the future. If somebody comes here in, in, a, in a few 10 million years and will start digging through the fossil record, they will encounter this weird sudden place where all of the fossil, all of the uh, carbon deposits on Earth instantaneously caught fire somehow. And they'll, they'll be like, how did this happen? Why were they all set ablaze in one event? <laughs> exactly. And so as you were exploring that with regards to the compression of time, I was also thinking about the obvious comparison and, and parallel to our compression of ideas. So specifically, I guess, with relation to your creative process, how does a new project begin to form for you? Do you start off with a final idea in mind? Or is it more of an exploratory discovery driven process for you? It definitely goes through a discovery process. Like I almost never set out with the final picture in mind. With the sculptures, sometimes I do, but, but with this generative stuff, it's very different. Part of that is simply because when you're working with a generative system, you kind of don't know exactly what it's kind of come up with. So inherently, you are relinquishing some amount of control to this system. And it's very similar to when you're working with other dynamical systems, like say with splashing paint against the canvas. I like to use this example because you don't know what the splashes are going to look like. And so you, you do something and then you react to it, right? Your next ac action is influenced by what you see, what happened to happen. And so it's very similar with these systems, uh, with these machine learning systems. You, you can train them and you can guide them somewhat, but when it comes to generation time, you don't quite know what's going to happen. And so you let it happen and then you react to it in the same way. And you also discover their limitations and 
unexpected things that are that are fabulous that you didn't realize would happen. And so absolutely, like I did not set out with this video project, for example, I did not set out to do this precise movie. But as I was working with the network I happened to be working with, I was looking at what it can generate, what are the different kind of classes and themes that are part of, that were part of the training set, and then try to within those try and find the story arc that would fit or that I could make happen with the tools I had at my disposal. That's super interesting. And I'm glad you brought up tools because that makes a really easy transition asking you about, you know, what tools you use to create your work. So we've talked about the deep dream algorithm, GANs. What's what's it like for you, you know, out exploring what's available out there? Do you ever make your own tools to enable your vision to be possible? Or do you just constrain yourself to whatever's already available? I mostly make my own tools, but I absolutely also use what's available, you know, on GitHub and what other people share. So for example, this project was made with BigGAN, which is a published model. And so I wanted to start with something that's already trained and then concentrate more on doing something unique with that trained model. So I, you know, I used the available source code and then wrote custom kind of rendering engine around it that I could then essentially program in this arc. And there's almost no video editing involved. It's all simply the timings and the way when things appear and disappear in the movie are all just programmed in in code. And then at the end, you know, I press a button and I wait for a week and then it's, it generates the thing. That's super cool. And so some of the projects that actually shift from digital concept into a physical presentation, how does that process happen? Is it a direct conversion between mediums or does the idea change as you experiment with formats? But again, it's like a fourth and back. It's never just one direction. This is an aspect that I haven't really figured out yet. I've done some experiments. You know, I have a studio where I have the ability to shape materials. And so I try, for example, taking the GAN portraits and 3D printing them as a depth map and then recasting it in glass. That was okay. I, I wasn't totally pleased with the, with the outcomes and I haven't had a lot of time in the last couple of months to kind of push on that. I still think there's something there, but the first try was not quite as satisfying as I thought it would be. And then now I'm going to go back and think about it some more and see if there's some other aspect of it that I can use or display or make visible in some way. And so with all this being said, given your experience and how you create, where do you think the evolution of the creative industry, especially with regards to machine learning or AI, where do you think that's all headed? I mean, it's another tool. And each time a new tool comes along, it sort of opens up different ways of working because typically something that was laborious before becomes sort of trivially easily. And then your mind can concentrate on something else. Like people used to have to mix their own oil paints out of pigment and, and, um, and oils. But at some point, somebody invented in tubes things you can buy. That saved a lot of time, right? And you could apply paints in, in new ways. Photography is another example where the process of just trying to depict something in the real world and put it down on paper, on, on canvas... That was what artists were doing and focusing on. Like, how do you, it's really difficult. We don't see things in a photorealistic way. We see them in a semantic way. It's like how children draw. And so drawing something photorealistically is actually a huge challenge that people made a, a lot of progress in the, in the Renaissance and the techniques have, have gotten incredibly good at that by the mid 19th century. Then photography came along and sort of solved that in, a, in an automatic way, essentially. You press a button and boom, you have, a, you have an image. And so people were worried at the time that this was like the end of painting because in their minds, that's what painting was for. But in fact, what happened is that these minds were opened to all the other ways that painting could be used. And so, so very quickly, you had things like impressionism and all the way to, to abstract art and surrealism, where it's not about depicting reality because that had already been solved, essentially, mechanically. 
but you can't take an impressionist picture. That's a depiction of the mind. And in, in many ways, the early 20th century artists were almost like neuroscientists. They were exploring the way in which we perceive things that is completely different from what looks like as a, you know, just the raw pixels coming in through your eyes on your retina. And so I, I feel like that technology sort of enabled that entire development, which we now know and love looking back. And so I think this is true for most technologies, right? And so generative technologies seen really interesting applications where people like, for example, where you start, instead of painting with a color, you paint with semantics. So you like say, oh, I want a house here and you kind of draw your thing. The neural network figures out the details, you know, how does it connect to the trees next to it and like draw a house that looks right in the context where it is. And so again, like the, the person driving this process is now thinking on another level. They're not thinking about exactly where, which, where it goes each tree, but they think, okay, well, what do I want here? And how does it relate to the other things in the image? It's a completely different way of drawing. I'm not saying it's better or worse. It's just different. It's another way. And so some people are going to go in that direction and explore it. Yeah, absolutely. So how would you get started in the space today if you were just beginning to explore with how to express yourself with some of this emerging technology? Where would you start? Yeah, some of these tools are really difficult to use if you're not already somebody who knows how to program. But there, is, there are some improvements most recently. So like Runway ML, for example, is a, a startup that's providing tools that make it a lot easier to interact with these technologies without wrapping them so much in a sort of rigid UI that you can't really express yourself with them anymore in a unique way. It just looks like the tool. So Runway ML is sort of, I think, strikes a pretty good balance between those two, those two extreme points. But other than that, I think if it was a lot of things, if you want to really express yourself, programming it yourself is the way to go because it just gives you the maximum flexibility to do whatever. And I think a lot of people have. I mean, there's, there's plenty of new media artists that do exactly that and have been very successful that way and have been doing it for much, much longer than the, the generative stuff. That's really just like the latest development in a field that's much, much older. And even with respect to like automated art or, or attempts to make agents that create art, which some people are interested in. I mean, if you look at the work of Harold Cohen, for example, he was doing this 20, 25 years, 30 years ago, you know, with his, his painting robots. And the technology was different at the time and the way these problems were approached was different, but the idea was exactly the same. Uh, David Cope is also in the, in the music sphere, one of the really early pioneers. Yeah, those are great resources. Thanks for mentioning those. And so as a follow-up, knowing what you know now, what advice would you have to share with a younger version of yourself or anyone who's looking to build a career exploring a similar path? Whatever path you end up taking that's going to influence what you do, it's so hard to say what was would have been a better or worse thing to do because the way we learn is we, we make the mistakes we make that's the process of learning be curious about things definitely so you've shared a lot about the evolution of your work and the things that you've been exploring but is there anything that you can share or hint at in terms of what might be coming next what are you planning or focusing on in the future so just finished a big installation and so i'm, I'm just looking forward to getting back into the studio and my computer and just sort of sit down and just sort of free sketch and experiment again. I, a lot of my work is very, I just experiment things and play with things and see what comes out. So I think, yeah, the, the generative video stuff, I have a couple of ideas that I, I want to try out that I have no idea. I don't even know how to describe them, but I'll just have to sit down and play with the code and see if something gives. And also I spent a lot of time recently working in the digital space and I actually miss doing more physical work. So I look forward to spending more time in the studio again, just sort of experimenting with materials and, and, and processes and, and see what I can do. I have a whole notebook of half-explored ideas that I just need time to sit down with and try. 
Yeah, definitely. There's never enough time to explore all of these ideas. And so what's your process like for prioritizing where to place your focus or how to choose which idea or concept to explore? It's a struggle at times. I mean, I have a very supportive partner. The rate at which I can make new things has definitely decreased as my family grew. But I just try, you know, do an hour here and there in the evenings and on the weekends, get a block of time. Part of the reason why I started doing more digital stuff is it's easier to just make a little bit of progress in, in an hour here or there. Whereas going to the studio means you kind of need a bigger chunk of time for it to be worthwhile. But as my kids are getting a little older now, it, it, it's going to get easier again to do that. But yeah, it's just, just trying to balance things. Working on one sculpture still, maybe I'll finish it next year. It's been five years from the initial experiments to it's almost being done. I mean, I'd say I'm like 65% through, 75% through. But I just, I do a lot of things in parallel. And then I just see, oh, I have a little bit of time, this sort of time. I'll try and move this thing along a little bit more. And I, I make good notes. So basically, for all of these projects, I have notes on what is literally the exact next thing to do. Like it might say, oh, you know, cut off this part of the metal thing or like weld these two things together. So that when I have a little bit of time, I don't spend a lot of time trying to remember what is the next thing to do. But I just look at my list and go, okay, right, this screw needed to go in here. Okay, let's do that. Yeah, that totally makes sense. But does that have an impact on your creative process? Like with all those breaks here and there, even with some of the notes, do you find that that'll really change your approach? I'm sure it's influencing the outcomes. I can't imagine it, it wouldn't. I think definitely work would be different if I had long periods of time where I can just sort of develop things. And it's a very different way of making work in the moment, what feels right in the moment. It probably contributes to the fact that a lot of my stuff is very cerebral because of the interruptions as well. Like, And there's direction changes where like, you had some idea, you were going to do it this way, but then you had a three-month interruption. You're a different person at that point when you come back to it. And so there's a slight direction change inevitably because new things have come along and you think about it differently. Yeah, I completely agree. Well said. Mike, thanks so much for taking the time to chat today. It was amazing to have you on the show. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, that's a wrap. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Tech Plus Art Podcast. We're a very small team behind this project, so we greatly appreciate all your support. If you love our content and these podcasts, consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and sharing it with a friend or two. This really does go a long way in helping us get discovered and reach more creators. As always, you can find us online at maketechart.com and at maketechart everywhere else. See you soon.